Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO. I have Sage Whitmore here. We're going to talk about ECMO physiology. We're going to talk about how the normal body responds to stressors, how the normal body deals with oxygen delivery and and use of oxygen. And then we're going to get into the pump today. And for some of you, this might be basic. For some of you, this might be the exact thing that you need. The gap in your knowledge that you didn't even really realize you had that will be a fundamental foundational piece of your ECMO education. But before we get into that, I want to just do a little advertising. We are almost done with our the first eCPR resuscitative ECMO book. It's going to be through ELSO. I, I am so thrilled about this. Sage is involved with it. We have people from all over the world who have contributed chapters that, uh, that frankly, I have learned so much from reading what these what these great authors do and then putting it all together has been has been a, uh, such a, a great joy so look for that probably next year sometime hopefully in the early parts of next year uh, but that is coming we've still not had ability to schedule reanimate again the, the our, our facilities are a bit down but hopefully in the not too near future or not too far future we're going to be able to get that back up and running i know a lot of you have been emailing us and asking us when the next conference is going to be we are still looking for that future date. All right, with that, let's jump in. Sage, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Pleasure, man. So, Sage, can you let's just start off with basic human physiology? Because yeah. I think that would be important for me to just remember how does my body work? Absolutely. What a question. Well, I gotta say, when I when I was invited to do the chapter and as I'm uh, refreshing myself on all this phys- physiology, it's hard not to have uh, you know, total imposter syndrome because we're sort of standing on the shoulders of Bartlett and and Lynch and and these people who have uh, opened our own eyes to physiology. And so, um, I'll do my best. What what I think the the number one thing that you should know about human physiology is that the entire organism depends on this concept called oxygen delivery. And there's a balance in every cell in your body of how much oxygen is available to that cell, how much oxygen the cell is going to use, and then what sort of metabolic byproducts that cell is going to send back to the heart and lungs to get rid of. And so the the key element of physiology is this, what we call a DO2-VO2 relationship, the DO2 being oxygen delivered to the cell and VO2 what is being consumed by the cell. It would be easy to get bogged down in numbers and equations and and diagrams and stuff, but I'll try to make it as straightforward as possible. Um, Let's say that every minute there's about a liter of oxygen delivered to your body, not blood, but oxygen itself, and that every minute your tissues consume about 200 mLs of that, about 20%. And your body is fine-tuned for that exact relationship, that that DO2-VO2 matching of about 5 to 1. And in periods of stress, if your body is under stress, whether that's an infection or a hemorrhage or a heart attack or any sort of major insult, uh, we want to know 
that are that that relationship is maintained. And so if a cell needs more oxygen, let's say it doesn't need 200 mLs, let's say it now needs 500 mLs, what your body is programmed to do is your body is programmed to now deliver twice as much oxygen to the cells who need twice as much so that five to one relationship is maintained. That means that if your body is able to, in a stress state, the cells consume more, your cardiac output is going to go up and maintain that five to one relationship. And that's why you see patients who are hypoxic or in septic shock or what have you. That's why they tend to have a hyperdynamic circulation. Their cardiac output has gone up. It can double and triple same thing with running a marathon or you know swimming across the ocean if your cells need more your cardiac output jumps up and your delivery increases to maintain a 5 to 1 relationship what happens when patients have cardiac failure which is our patient population because we're talking about ecmo what happens when patients have cardiac failure is that no matter how much oxygen their tissues need in a stress state they are unable to increase their cardiac output and maintain that five to one relationship. And so their oxygen consumption can go up and up and up as the cells are stressed, but the DO2 never changes. And sometimes it even falls in the meantime. And so instead of a five to one delivery to consumption ratio, you end up with a four to one, three to one, two to one. And what happens at about two to one is that your cells are forced to start anaerobic metabolism. And that's where lactate is produced uh, so that um, NADH can be recycled. And so in patients who's, who are stressed, whose hearts are too sick to compensate, their DO2-VO2 relationship starts to go down. It may fall less than two to one, and they start to make lactate. And these are the classic cardiogenic shock patients we see who are altered, cold, clammy, oliguric, lactate rising, creatinine bumping, et cetera. So that, in my mind, would be the very uh, the central aspect of the whole discussion is that DO2-VO2 relationship. And now we have to enter and how can ECMO uh, contribute to this relationship? Okay, so that's awesome. So I now get somebody. They're in cardiac arrest. We had obviously severe cardiogenic shock to the nth degree. Right. Uh, I've now put in two cannulas. I'm now sucking blood out of the right atrium and putting it back up the aorta. Um, how does this change? What's happening now? What you're doing with ECMO in this, in this case, not all cases, but in this uh, cardiac arrest ECPR scenario is you are entirely replacing the patient's native oxygen delivery with your pump. And so what are the aspects of oxygen delivery? The three main variables are cardiac output, hemoglobin concentration, and hemoglobin saturation. And since the patient's body is unable to uh, mount any cardiac output at all and is unable to saturate hemoglobin at all, that's what we're doing with the ECMO machine. So we're taking that patient's blood out of the right side of their heart. We are pumping it, which means that we're pressurizing it. We're pushing it through a membrane lung so that we can get rid of CO2 and saturate the hemoglobin. And then we are returning the blood to the patient's arterial tree, oxygenated and under pressure, the two, two elements of 
of VA ECMO. The blood is oxygenated and it's under pressure. And so that blood hits the arterial tree of the patient with enough pressure that it can make its way down the vascular waterfall through arterioles, capillaries, et cetera, make its way back to the venous side to um, continue the cycle. And so we have replaced both the cardiac output feature and the oxygenation feature for the patient, taken over completely. The end organs, other than the lack of pulsatility, which is a nuance we can get into, but other than the lack of pulsatility, the end organs are happy to see oxygenated blood flowing towards them. They don't so much care if that blood came antegrade through the patient's heart or retrograde through our system. They're seeing pressurized, bright red blood, and that's what they need. Okay, so take me through now the delivery. How does my delivery of oxygen change from the moment that I had a normal working everyday guy, five liters going through the heart, to now no liters going, or some fraction of blood going through the heart and primarily going through the ECMO machine? The, <clears throat> so the oxygen delivery, the variables will remain the same, but instead of manipulating patient's cardiac output, you're going to manipulate the flow on the ECMO. Um, the variable that you're not going to be able to control with the ECMO is hemoglobin. And so um, if the patient's bleeding, that's going to be a big problem in terms of oxygen delivery. So you're going to have to keep a close eye on that. And then unless it's really old or malfunctioning, the membrane lung is going to fully saturate the blood the PO2 coming out of it is going to be in like the 400 to 500 range. So you won't have any issues there. Um, so you should be able to get the patient's DO2 VO2 relationship, certainly above that two to one critical threshold, if not higher than that three, four or five to one. Um, now you mentioned a fraction of blood still coming through the patient's uh, native circulation. And so we we ought to address that concept here. When you're on VA ECMO, uh, peripheral VA ECMO, because we put cannulas in the groin, um, except for that moment when the patient is in complete cardiac arrest, uh, at any other point as the patient's cardiac function comes back, uh, you're not on total bypass. In other words, the patient is... Uh, not getting 100% of their oxygen delivery from you, but they're getting some fraction of oxygen delivery from the native cardiopulmonary circulation. Every red blood cell in the right heart can either be drained out into the ECMO circuit or it can be swept along antegrade through the lungs to the left side of the heart and out uh, as it would in a normal state. And so what the patient is seeing on the arterial side of things depends on how much of that blood is going through the normal circulation versus how much is going through your machine. Most of the time, it all works out fine. The end organs don't really care. Uh, they're seeing a, a combination of native flow and ECMO flow. When it becomes a real problem is if the patient's lungs don't work then every red, red blood cell moving antegrade through the native cardiopulmonary circuit is coming out into the arterial system without enough oxygen. And that's a big deal when you're on peripheral ECMO because our ECMO blood is, is going retrograde up the aorta from the groin and it's competing with the blood coming out of the left ventricle. 
And so if the patient's lungs don't work, then the left ventricle blood is hypoxic and competing with your ECMO blood. And so you have this thing called uh, regional hypoxia or differential hypoxia, uh, or more, most commonly what we refer to as north-south syndrome, um, meaning that uh, poorly oxygenated blood coming out of the patient's heart into the aortic arch, the first place it's going to go is the coronary arteries, and the second place it's going to go is to the brain. And being that those are the number one organs you're concerned about, um, that's a big deal. Okay, so we've talked about north-south syndrome. We talked about how the native heart can actually affect the oxygenation uh, in a deleterious way. I want to get into the couple of things that we had, you just mentioned. First, I, tell me about uh, the lack of pulsatility. What does that do to our physiology? Um, <laughs> good question. I, I, there are, there are probably, uh, a lot of in-depth researchers who could answer the question best. My gleaning of the literature is that it either doesn't affect things too terribly much, or it may affect, uh, renal blood flow and, um, and renal performance primarily. What we tend to teach and what we tend to think to ourselves is that in the absence of pulsatility, you probably need a little bit of a higher blood pressure to maintain glomerular filtration. And whether or not that's, that's really empirically true, uh, like in, a, in the terms of a randomized clinical trial, I don't think so. Um, but this is our rudimentary understanding. And so um, a, patient, uh, a patient with a pulse might have adequate glomerular filtration at a MAP of 60, for example, but without a pulse, without pulsatility, that patient might need a MAP of 70 or 75 to have adequate glomerular filtration. This is, this is what we, um, this is what we think and, and sort of the thinking that we go with. Yeah, I agree. This is, this is a fascinating topic. And uh, the, thing i like about this is this really brings in lvad literature as well so we have the with the heartmate xve we had the initial pulsatile machine that everybody thought okay this is mimicking physiology and then oh we went to the heartmate too and said oh like we don't need that and people did do fine over long periods of time they did they did relatively fine yeah uh, and now we're going into the back to the pulsatility mode with heartmate threes and so, yeah, this idea that someone in a, in a relatively brief amount of time, meaning just a few weeks with, with eCPR or VA ECMO, that they're going to have tremendous uh, effects from a lack of pulsatility, tough to say, but, but it is a fascinating topic. And maybe the glomerular filtration rate and maybe some of the, the smaller capillaries could be affected by the lack of pulsatility. Yeah, there's, a, there's definitely been some thought of routinely incorporating a a balloon pump, you know, with your ECMO circuit to establish some degree of pulsatility and some, some observational literature suggesting that people do better when use the combination versus just ECMO. But, uh, I have to think that maybe more about venting the LV, which is probably a, a segue for where you're going next. Yeah. So LV venting, definitely. But before we get there, tell me, we talked about oxygen delivery. Tell me about our hemoglobin. What number should we go? We've had all these lit- all this literature in critical care saying low, 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 low. Mm-hmm. Do I need to think the same way in my ECMO patient? Oh, uh, uh, if I—that's a million-dollar question. I wish I knew exactly. Um, 
based on, uh, I don't know, probably a sense of caution and fear in, on the side of the provider, we're generally pushing our hemoglobins a little bit higher in ECMO patients than the general critical care population. Um, you know, other than the acutely bleeding or, um, uh, or acute coronary syndrome patient where the general ICU patient doesn't really need a hemoglobin much over seven. My, um, my recommendation on ECMO is to keep the hemoglobin between eight and 10. Um, and, uh, that again, that's not based on any randomized data, but that's based on uh, a practical need to give the patient some sort of cushion against bleeding events so that you don't find yourself too far behind the eight ball. Uh, and it's a, a practical uh, physiologic recommendation to keep their oxygen delivery um, somewhat normal. Um, I think you could do two things to decide if somebody really has enough hemoglobin. Uh, the first thing is you can look at their markers of perfusion, like primarily what is their mixed venous saturation, which on ECMO, you can draw a blood gas off of the venous drainage limb and get a pretty good idea what that is. Uh, and you can also send a lactate. And so if your patient has a good flow on ECMO and good oxygen saturations, but they've got a persistently low SVO2 or their lactate won't clear, then the, the missing variable to manipulate there would be to give them some extra red blood cells. So um, in that way, you can customize your approach to the patient. Um, and then the other thing that you could do is you could do the math, for example. You could say, you know, in a normal state, you've got five liters output, hemoglobin of 15 and SATs of 100%. And that gives you a liter of DO2. Uh, and you could do the math for your current hemoglobin and see how bad that is or, you know, how much less your DO2 is. But that to me only answers half the question. In order to figure out what's going on in the patient, I need to know what their VO2 is and that's much harder to measure. So my opinion is you keep their hemoglobin somewhere in the eight to 10 range, and then you make allowances to push it higher if the patient's uh, SVO2 or lactate are poor and there's uh, nothing else that you can optimize. Okay. So yeah, so we've got a machine with a cannula right in the RA. We can get some pretty accurate numbers from there and just see, is our resuscitation going well or are we, are we losing the battle? I, I like that approach, Sage. Now let's, let's talk about, and I think you're right, there's lack of data. Uh, it is that recent paper for coronary diseases might suggest we lower hemoglobin than we initially had said. But yeah, it's still up in the air and, and we do need some more literature specifically in the eCPR community to say what is the ideal hemoglobin. Now one of the questions I think we should bring back to, and this maybe will solidify some of this physiology for people as well, is when we're talking about North-South syndrome, you said we can get from the ECMO oxygen uh, membrane, we can get a PaO2 as high as we want it. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that that might not be the, the PaO2 that the coronaries are seeing or that the brain is seeing. Yeah. Is there a problem with having such a high FiO2 going to the rest of the body, to the, to the non-right radial arterial blood gas reading? Do you think that we should be taking that down early or keeping it up? for until we have better data? Oh man, another million dollar question. Um, <clears throat> I have, I have uh, yet to find a cardiac arrest enthusiast or cardiac arrest researcher who says, don't worry about it. 
Um, I, I've yet to find just dental ribbing. I've yet to find a cardiac surgeon who says worry about it. Um, when we put somebody on peripheral VA ECMO, the next, the very next maneuver that we're going to do is we're going to put an art line in the right upper extremity every single time. Because when we draw a blood gas off of the right upper extremity, uh, which is coming from the right subclavian artery, the first takeoff of the aortic branch, we, we feel that that blood gas is giving us the most accurate window into the type, the type of blood or the kind of oxygenation that the coronaries are seeing just proximal to it and that the brain is seeing just distal to it. So um, the right radial or right upper extremity ABG becomes critically important. <clears throat> what, I, what I teach and what we've built into our program is that when we initiate ECMO in a cardiac arrest scenario, because the patient is going to have zero native cardiac output, your ECMO blood is going to occupy the entire aorta from down below all the way up to the aortic valve. And therefore you are in direct control of the blood that the brain sees. And so I tell my perfusionist to start the machine on a membrane FiO2 or an FDO2 of 50%. And then I check that right upper extremity ABG frequently and I titrate as needed to get a, a like sort of moderate PO2 somewhere in the 80 to 100 to 120 range so that I'm not at risk of cerebral hyperoxia, which seems to be a big deal. Um, <clears throat> now, in, in terms of the rest of the body, you know, that I'm less clear on. I know that we have an abundance now of uh, at least observational critical care literature showing that the higher the patient's PO2 or the more time they spend in a hyperoxic state, the less well they do. I'm not sure exactly what to say about that. I'm also not sure once the patient has native contractility return and our right upper extremity PO2 looks okay, if there's still a PO2 of 500 in the ECMO blood, but it's only going to the kidneys and the legs, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do about that, to be honest. Um, but again, in a state of no native cardiac output where your ECMO blood hits the brain directly, yeah, I turn down the oxygenator on the machine, try to avoid hyperoxia. Very nice. Yeah, the blender is key to try and get us to the right place. Now, we talked about all this ECMO physiology. One of the things that I always get confused on and, and how I'm really supposed to interpret are these pressure monitors, pre and post pump. Sure. Can you give us an idea of what's like, what, what am I supposed to be doing with those numbers? <laughs> well, some would say nothing. And there's a fair, there's a fair number of perfusionists and surgeons that I've talked to who are in fan of running a circuit with no pressure monitoring at all, because it adds pressure bags, tubing, stopcocks, and, and, uh, you know, points of access to the circuit that can cause bleeding or air bubble entrainment or, you know, or, um, doors for infection. So <clears throat> just know that on one end of this bell curve, there are people who would be just fine running ECMO with absolutely no circuit pressure monitoring at all and just going clinically. Um, in the middle of the bell curve are people like me who would argue that uh, a venous pressure, which is a, a circuit pressure uh, in the venous limb before the blood hits the pump and before it hits the oxygenator, uh, that that would be sort of a, a good middle ground as a pressure to monitor. 
And then, uh, and then there's circuits like the cardio help that have three pressures integrated into the system, which is a venous pressure from the tubing before the pump. There's, there's an in what they call an internal pressure, which is between the pump and the oxygenator and then an arterial pressure, which is the pressure in the tubing post oxygenator on the way back to the patient. So what do I do with these numbers? Um, the first thing I do is I look at the patient. Um, if the patient has a good blood pressure and seems well supported, then I sort of take a sigh of relief and tell myself that I have a few minutes to sit down and scratch my head about circuit pressures. The second thing that I look at is the venous pressure uh, on the machine and a normal venous pressure. It's a true negative pressure inside this tubing because the ECMO pump is literally sucking blood rapidly out of the patient. A normal venous pressure is somewhere between negative 50 to negative 100. And so that's where my eyes would go. And so, you know, let's say I put a patient on ECMO and I'm seeing a minus 70 there. I feel like that's a normal pressure and I'm sort of just going to make a note of it that that seems to be operating okay. What happens when a patient becomes hypovolemic uh, or the ECMO cannula is having a suction event, it's either clotted or the IVC is um, sucking down on it, is that that negative pressure will dive profoundly past negative 100, minus 150, minus 200, and then the venous line of the ECMO circuit will actually start jumping and chattering back and forth uh, because the blood is chugging through it. And so that's a problem uh, for two reasons. One is you're not going to get enough ECMO flow if you can't drain blood effectively. And number two, you're hemolyzing red blood cells with all that chugging. Um, uh, but what I do is I like to correlate what a venous pressure looks like in that individual patient with whether they're chugging and getting good blood flow. And so some patients won't chug until a minus 200. Some patients won't chug uh, above a minus 100. Some patients are chugging no matter what. And so I like to look at that chugging and the flow of the machine to decide to give the patient volume. I use those indicators more than I use the actual pressure number itself. The, on the other side of the pump, you've got this internal post-pump pressure and then this arterial or post-membrane uh, pressure. And these are the pressures inside the circuit tubing uh, that are being experienced as the pump pressurizes the blood. And those are usually somewhere between 200 and 300. Um, I am myself am not really concerned with what that pressure is as it goes to the patient because the pressure is immediately dispersed at the tip of the ECMO cannula and equilibrates with the arterial tree. Uh, And so it doesn't bother me so much there. People talk about hemolysis with high um, post-pump pressures. Um, I'm not, but I'm not sure I give it that much clinical gravity. The one other place where I will use pressures is when I compare the pre and post oxygenator pressures and that, and going across that as a as a, a pressure drop or what we call a delta P, uh, the oxygenator itself absorbs some of the post pump pressure, and so what goes the pressure going into the oxygenator is always a little more than what comes out the backside, and the nature of that pressure drop depends on the oxygenator you're using. For example, a quadrox pump you might have twenty to forty of pressure drop. 
Um, these cylindrical uh, Euro set oxygenators, you might have 50 to 80 or almost 100 of pressure drop across it. So just know what is typical for your, for your device and then trend it over time. And what you'll see is if the oxygenator is going to thrombose, uh, you'll see the pressure drop get higher and higher and higher across those. Um, that's not something um, I worry about in the immediate sense, other than to just know what is normal and just um, integrate that into your circuit check. Okay, so let me see if I can summarize that, because that was excellent. So you're saying that the pressure numbers are, they can be useful, but maybe not critical that a clinical eye a good clinical eye can see if the cannula is moving outside the patient on the venous side they can say that's chugging or chatter and i don't like that so i need to either give them some volume or decrease my flows exactly i know that this is going to cause damage to the ivc inside and is not going to help my flows so going up on the rpms if i see chugging is not going to be useful for me, even if I have a low overall flow. Yeah. Turning the RPM up is almost never the answer for a flow issue. Um, the, the machine is going to give you what you want if you give it enough volume. So absolutely. And then the arterial side is not terribly important unless we want to think about hemolysis, which again is questionable of what happens to that pressure after it dissipates from the tip of the cannula. But I am concerned, especially when I get to the ICU stay about this membrane oxygenator and whether it's having buildup of gunk in it. And so my Delta P across there will be uh, one of the useful metrics I can use. Exactly. Yep. I think that's a great summary. Okay. So final thing here, let's talk about this. You mentioned it, LV venting. Physiologically, tell me what that is and what do I do about it? Well, ECMO, uh, peripheral VA ECMO is a double-edged sword when it comes to cardiac support. Uh, it is going to replace most or all of your oxygen delivery needs but it's also competing with the left ventricle for space and room in the aorta. And so the left ventricle is trying to eject blood through the aortic valve into the aortic arch. And, uh, and so it has to overcome whatever afterload is existing in the aorta. Uh, without ECMO, that afterload correlates to mean arterial pressure. So the higher the patient's blood pressure the, the higher their LV afterload and the worse their LV performance is. When a patient's on VA ECMO, the ECMO flow itself is the primary source of afterload that the left ventricle fights to eject. And so what you'll see at the bedside is that the, uh, the higher the ECMO flow, the less blood gets ejected from the left ventricle. Uh, as an example, if I put a patient on VA ECMO who's in cardiogenic shock, with an EF of say 10 or 15%. If I flow that patient at six liters, I may see no pulse at all on my A-line, no aortic opening on my bedside echo, and almost no LV contractility at all. But if I decrease my flow to five and then to four and then to three liters, I will see a pulse emerge on the A-line. I'll see aortic opening and the patient's left ventricle will squeeze more vigorously with each decrease in flow. So the ECMO flow is pushing against the left ventricle. And so um, 
if you have a, a patient, say, with a massive PE or right heart failure, but a normal left ventricle, that LV will not mind competing with the ECMO for room in the aorta. But if you put a patient with a sick left ventricle on peripheral VA ECMO, that VA ECMO feeds the organs, but it fights the heart. And so uh, at adequate ECMO flows, the left ventricle might be too weak to eject, and it becomes swollen and engorged. Uh, the myocardium becomes more ischemic. The filling pressures go up and can cause really bad pulmonary edema or even pulmonary hemorrhage. And so if you have a sick left ventricle on VA ECMO, you have to uh, look for and do something to ensure that the LV is ejecting. Fantastic. Okay. So Sage, we talked about a lot of stuff here. We got from the basic physiology into some of these these really pressing points. Anything else that you think we could tell to the listeners about ECMO physiology? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think your your basic markers of perfusion like lactate and SVO2 are still immensely helpful in ECMO. Um, they, they don't lie to you. I think ECMO patients probably need some of the highest level invasive monitoring you have, certainly CVP and invasive arterial access, um, but uh, PA catheter, mean PA pressures can be useful as well. Um, an invaluable role for frequent, you know, almost multiple times a day, uh, bedside echo. Um, and, uh, and I think a lot of this physiologic manipulation sort of come from experience and watching how the patient changes under different conditions. Awesome. All right. From ED ECMO, this is Sage Whitmore and Zach Shiner signing off.